Hi, welcome to the True Crime Podcast. I am your host, Renette, and today I have a very special guest with us. He's back for the second time, Oz Cruz. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Thanks for having me again. Thank you for coming back. So I wanted to bring you on today because um, the last time you came over, we had talked about the Laura Arroyo case. Right, right. And you were um, a part of that case as far as finding the perpetrator, right? Right. I was a young officer during that time. Okay. So I'll just kind of give a little backstory on Laura Arroyo and her family. So Laura Arroyo was born on January 14th, 1982 to her mom, who was also named Laura, but I'll refer to her as Mrs. Arroyo so we don't get it like confused or whatever, and her father, Luis. So Laura had two older brothers, Augustine and Jose. Augustine was two years older than her and Jose was one year older than her. Um, her dad, Luis, was an auto body painter and Mrs. Arroyo was a homemaker. So it was June 19th, 1991, and earlier in the day, Laura had been out like in the apartment complex playing with her friends because this was 1991, and back then there was like no technology, cell phones, computers. It was a great time, right? Yeah, the good old days. (laughs) So, um, but it was the nighttime already, and so Laura was nine years old, and she went into her apartment to the upstairs bedroom of the family's two-story apartment complex. So that was the Monterey Park condominium complex on Monterey Court in the San San Ysidro um, neighborhood. So it was about 9 o'clock. She was already in her pink pajamas, relaxing in the bedroom with her mom watching TV. And at 9 p.m., there's a knock on the door. So Laura goes downstairs to see who's at the door. Now, Luis, her dad, um, he was also upstairs with her two older brothers, making sure that they were taking their baths and all that sort of stuff. Um, But he heard the knocking on the door, too, and he can hear Laura ask, who is it? But he said he didn't hear a reply from the person that was knocking. So about 10 minutes go by and her parents go down to see who's there and where's Laura. So when they go downstairs, the front door was wide open and Laura was gone. At first, her parents didn't feel any sort of concern. Um, It was just like the norm for them to have friends come by knocking on the door to play even at that time at night. So her mom actually ends up going into the kitchen and cooking some food. Um, But it was about 10 minutes that went by and one of her parents ended up sending like one of her brothers to go outside to see if they can find her. So he goes outside and he sees some of her friends playing still and he asks them if they've seen Laura and they said no. Um, the last time that they had seen her was when her friend Elizabeth walked Laura to the front of her apartment door and Elizabeth actually seen Laura, uh, I'm seeing, yeah, seen Laura walk inside her home and shut the door. But that was the last time she was seen. So her brother goes back in to tell his parents that Laura's not there and nobody knows where she is. Now, this is when they start to worry and the entire family go outside calling Laura's name and going door to door to try and find her. Unfortunately, there was no sign of Laura, so they call the police at around 9.31 p.m. So the officers go to the home and they go around the neighborhood calling out her name, going door to door, just trying to locate her. And they 
did this all night. Uh, sadly, at around 6.30 a.m. the following morning, there was a woman named Hilda who arrived to work at the Aqua Alarm on Bay Boulevard. And when she got to work, she can see little Laura's feet sticking out from some bushes. So she phoned the police and um, police get there. Laura was still in her pink pajamas. Um, she was in a pool of blood and she had been stabbed at least 10 times with what appeared to be a pickaxe. Um, I watched a video on YouTube and one of the officers that was talking, they said that he said when he arrived to the scene, her head was open to the point where you can slightly see her skull. And um, there was hemorrhaging indicating that she was strangled. So she had a broken nose. Some of her teeth were chipped and there was bruising all along her body. Um, her body is taken to the medical examiner's office and a rape kit is done as part of like regular procedure. Now, even though like on the outside, they said it, um, her genitals, it didn't appear that any sort of assault was, had taken place. Uh, but anyways, they did do this rape kit. Um, now when they did their rape kit, initially no sperm was found. Um, so it appeared at that time that there was no sexual assault. And during this time, detectives are still doing their investigating. They're trying to find out who would murder this beautiful little girl. They figured that it had to be someone that they knew because when she opened that door, there was no scream. There was no sound of a scuffle or anything like that. Um, they figured she must have will willingly went with whoever was knocking at that door. Now, um, Laura had that friend, Elizabeth, and when a investigators talked to Elizabeth, she would she told them that she was playing with Laura that evening and she said that her other friend Jessica, um, her, Jessica's dad had walked by. Now Jessica's dad, his name was Manuel Bracamontes and apparently Manuel had moved out a week prior to Laura missing and I'm not sure why, um, but he would still go to the apartment complex to see his girlfriend and his girlfriend had children from a prior relationship, but Manuel and the girlfriend shared one child together, Manuel Jr. Anyway, Elizabeth said that Manuel walked by twice that night. The first time he walked by and he didn't say anything to the girls. And the second time he looked at Elizabeth and he told her, hey, your mom's calling you. And so Elizabeth goes into her apartment and asks her mom um, if she was looking for her. And her mom said, no, I wasn't looking for you. And so Elizabeth goes out there to play. And when I seen this video on YouTube, um, I think it was from Dateline, but they were talking to the investigators. The investigators said that stood out to them because they thought it seemed suspicious because that was probably Manuel's way of separating the two girls and getting Laura alone. Um, but detectives talked to Manuel and they asked him if he knew Laura. And he had said something like, well, I see her around the neighborhood, but I don't know her very well, which that was really strange because Laura played with his stepdaughter, Jessica, all the time. Right. So, and just Laura would go into the his apartment and he would, he just talked to her. So they just thought that was weird. Um, and so they asked Manuel if he was in the apartment complex the night that Laura went missing. He said no which they knew it was a lie because other kids in the complex had seen him. 
And um, again, he had walked by Laura and Elizabeth a couple times. Um, two weeks go by and they ask Manuel if he's willing to go to the police department. So just so they can talk to him. And he does agree. He goes and he said the night Laura went missing, he was not in the neighborhood. He said that he was at his mom's house because she was sick or something. Um, but according to the neighborhood kids that seen him, and there was actually two adult men that seen him, um, it was at that same time, like 9 p.m., just before 9 p.m. at night before she went into the apartment and was never seen again. Um, and those two men did say that they seen Manuel driving away in his black Jetta. So detectives end up getting a search warrant um, because they had enough witnesses saying that they had seen him um, in the area. And they take blood and hair samples. So his car and his home, they were searched. And the only thing that they found was one of the fibers from Manuel's sweaters matched the fibers found on Laura's pajamas. But there was nothing more really, like such as physical evidence, um, linking him to the crime. So they couldn't arrest him. So, a year goes by, and Chula Vista Police Department still has Laura on their mind, and so they call Manuel and see if they can talk with him once again, and he does agree to go. So, again, they tell him that several people seen him at Laura's apartment complex that night uh, that she went missing, and he said that it wasn't possible because he was at his mom's, and he said when he left the apartment complex, it was still daylight because he said he was there like around 5 p.m. to pick up or to visit his little son, but by the time he had left, it was still daylight. Now they asked him again if he had seen little Laura, and this time he says yes. He said that he had seen her out there playing with all of the other kids, so that completely contradicted what he originally said the year prior, right? So while they're interviewing him, and mind you, he can leave at, like anytime he wants to, his pager goes off, and um, that's when he decides to end the interview and he takes off. And Laura's case goes cold for 11 years. Okay, so since 1991, he would, they, they had a hunch, but uh, unfortunately not enough evidence. So. Yep. I can imagine that's so frustrating when you have a case and you feel in your gut that this is a person. There's many cases like that. Right yeah. Now, even now, um, that we either have an inkling or we know we just can't prove it. Yeah. And we're just waiting, waiting, waiting. So there's a lot of cases current currently like that. Okay. And uh, it, it eats away at you. Oh, I can imagine. So I can imagine though, when time goes by and stuff like this happens, where you right. do have the evidence and you can do something, how rewarding it yeah. is. Yeah. And, is it, and we're talking about 1991, so. DNA wasn't that big, it, 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 you know, we, it, they did the rape kit to try to collect some evidence, but comparisons were very difficult back then. So, um, you know, you got to put yourself back in 1991 to kind of better understand, well, they had this, why didn't they do that? They just didn't, we didn't have the technology at that time. Yeah. And so uh, you can see a year later, these officers, detectives are still trying to work it, you know, and Yes, he gives a different statement, but that's argued away very easily by defense. Okay. Because they're like, well, yeah, you're asking me a year later, 
about something and I'm, I'm a little mixed up. So which one is correct? Yeah. And so it's easy to sweep under the table that, that a different statement is given. For us, it's important, uh, but it's easily explained away to a jury. So we have to be careful just because they give a different statement. It helps us probably know we're on the right path, but it's unfortunately in court, it's easily explained away. Yeah. So. Well, thanks to the amazing police department's cold case unit, they decide to take another look into Laura's case um, since there were technical technological advances at the time. And so they bring out the swabs from Laura's rape kit and this time they did find sperm cells. So the hair samples that they had taken from Manuel at this point, it's 12 years now, um, they're brought out and compared to the sperm and it was a match that it was Manuel that, that did this. So uh, I, I seen this video on YouTube and the investigators was just talking about how like how happy they were when they found that match right. and how in one of the investigators, I wish I would have written down the name, but called the other guy they, they were just so stoked about it um so anyways they finally had the evidence to convict who they originally suspected that it was all of this time so october 24th this is 2003 now da investigator robert marquez and his partner michael howard they um get ready to arrest manual they get the arrest warrant at around 6 p.m. and they went to Manuel's, I'm not sure if it was his girlfriend still at that time or ex-girlfriend, but they shared that son, little Manuel, who at this point, he was 13 years old now. They go to uh, her house to try and see if they can find him there or maybe get his current address. And so they go to the house, knock on the door, and Manuel's son said that um, none of his parents were home, but he did say that his dad was expected to arrive shortly to pick him up. So the investigators go back to their car to wait around until Manuel shows up. So they're sitting in the car, and there's this blue Ford Explorer that pulls up in front of the house. And that's when Detective Marquez approaches the explorer and he um, he kind of like pulled his coat back to show his weapon and to show his badge just to show who he was. Um, and Detective Howard, he tells Manuel, who's still in the vehicle at this time, that he's under arrest. And Manuel asks him for what? And the officer says murder. And that's when Manuel just takes off. He books it in his vehicle, and Detective Howard, he... Now, I know you say you remembered one shot, right? That when this was talked about, right. one shot was fired. Um, so it was one or two shots, because there was, like, the court records that said also two shots. Um, but shots were fired at the vehicle. They miss. So they're in their car driving to catch up to Manuel, but Manuel gets away. And I believe it said that they got he got kind of lost in traffic at that time. Um, so they put like a bolo out and law enforcement even notifies the Mexican border since it was only about four miles away. And... Um, now, this is where I want you to talk, like, Oz, because it says, when I was reading the court documents and different articles, it was saying that police were looking at Chula Vista motels. Right. Now, you had, like, a big part with this. I did. I did. You know, um, this case is really close to heart because um, 
I remember this case as a uh, young adult, young teenager, 1991. Well, I'm an adult now, 1991. Um, but, you know, I had just been out of, I graduated in 87 from Tulamista High School. Um, you know, a little bit about me is I was, I started law enforcement in 1999 with the Sheriff's Department. And then in 2000, June of 2000, I was hired by the Tulamista Police Department. And in 2002, I became a canine officer. So I remember this story because of the billboard. Yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Yes, um, but because of the billboard, um, the billboard, which which made this case even more popular throughout the entire country, um, was that was a big thing, and it was over off of Main Street and um, and uh, Broadway. Well, I lived a block away. Okay. Um, during that time off of Jacqua, that corner house. So I would see those lines of cars, 10,000 cars over the weekend. Jeez. And I would see those cars. So I remember uh, the story. I remember seeing the billboard. I remember all the news about that time. And then it went cold. So that's me as a civilian. And then 11 years later, you know, 2003, maybe a few more years after that, I'm a police officer, a canine officer working graveyards, and um, I walk into roll call. And your typical roll call is, you know, your entire team that's working that night walks in there. Your sergeants are, you know, you have two sergeants that sit at the head of the table, and you have your lieutenant who's considered the watch commander for the night. And they give you a briefing as to what happened earlier that day. And we just joke around a little bit. We talk about what happened the night before, what we're, you know, if we have anything that we're going to do, be working special. That's it. Yeah. And then we go, go out. This was different because when I walked in there, there was a bunch of people in suits and ties and shirts at the front. And, and I had never seen these individual. Those ended up being the investigators you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. And so I knew something serious was going on. And, uh, and they start briefing us about what just happened earlier that day that they went you know, they had this case about Laura Royal, and uh, um, and they start talking about it, and the name sounds so familiar to me, and I remember saying, is that the one with the billboard? Uh-huh. And I remember saying, yeah, that's it. And so, I'm like, wow, I remember that, you know? It's yeah. a block away from, my, from where I live, I remember, so all those memories came back. And so, they tell us about what happened that day, that they went to go arrest him, and he fled, and shots were fired, and he got away. Um, what the, what the, a little bit more information that never was put out there was that after he got away, the investigators spoke to family members and basically disclosed why he was being, or why they had an arrest warrant, that they had evidence, mm-hmm. that they had DNA that they had uh, semen cultures showing that um, he had molested her, he had raped her. Um, and once the family heard this, then the family was, you know, uh, Mando's family was uh, not really in support of him anymore. They, yeah. they basically said, yeah, you know, we, we, we never expected this. We didn't, be- we didn't believe it, but with this new evidence. And so what they told investigators were that he had reached out to family and he said that he was going to flee into Mexico, mm-hmm. um, but he was waiting to uh, for the following day, waiting for the banks to open because he needed to take cash out his bank account mm-hmm. and was going to flee. 
south. Wow. So based off of that, the investigators believe that he was still in South Bay area. Yeah. He was obviously driving his car. Nobody else had lent him hit another car. They, they didn't think that he was, you know, driving around in a stolen car or a rental car. So they gave us the information um, as to what car he was driving, um, pictures of him, and said, we think he's somewhere in South Bay. Keep your eyes out. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be here all night, you know, trying to get information and, and put together what we think he's in South Bay. In particular, we think he's in Chula Vista. Mm -hmm. So um, 2003, I'm a canine officer. And as a canine officer, I'm not assigned to beat. I basically get to roam around okay. and I respond to any hot calls, anything where there's a safety concern for officers or the public, anything where, you know, there's a weapon involved, anything like that, any hot call I immediately go to, mm -hmm. but I get to pick, which yeah. is why I love that position. So after roll call, I went up to my watch commander and I said, Hey, I'm going to spend the rest of the shift unless I'm needed, um, checking every single motel. Now, in 2003, um, Chula Vista was full of motels and hotels. Uh -huh. We had little motels off of Broadway coming in from National City that were like four rooms, and that was it. You know, and they were little drug house motels. You know, unfortunately, yeah, uh, we had them all over. And if I had, had to give you a count, I, I don't know why this number sticks out, but like in the 60s, Jeez. we had about 60 hotel motels throughout the city. Yeah. And so um, I knew all of them. And so I told my watch commander, I'm going to check every hotel and motel. And he said, yeah, go ahead. Just res you know, respond to the calls needed. So I spent my entire shift from 10 p.m. because uh, the shift is from 10 to 7. And so from 10 p.m., uh, I went out there. And I started searching every single motel. I started from the west side. I moved out to the east side. Came back around from the south side uh, of Chula Vista. I was working my way down Broadway, coming back. And um, you and I had this discussion. Because, yeah. Um, you said, I bet you it was. And you said, like. The Bay this, City's the, motel. The City motel. Yeah. The shady motel. And I said, how'd you know? And because that was the last motel I checked. And so I come off of Broadway. If you're not familiar with that, the, the rooms sit up on the second um, um, uh, story. Mm -hmm. And the bottom story is basically carports. Yes. And so um, it's kind of a, a, a entrance and you wrap around and you come back up on the other side. So um, my dog's asleep in the back of the patrol car by then. It's like 2 a.m. around there. And I drive in and there's about four cars. Um, and I'm seeing double by this time because yeah, I'm looking exactly. at every single license plate. Who knows how much coffee I've had. Yeah. And um, as I come back around, there's one last car uh, almost in the last parking stall. And I look at that car and the license plate matches. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's weird because as I'm describing it, I can picture myself there and the feeling of it. I see the license plate. I don't believe what I'm seeing. Um, I think that I'm making things up, so I have to like look at the paper and confirm, and I'm going digit by digit. Is this correct? And I'm going digit by digit, and I'm like, yeah, this is it. And now I'm thinking, oh my God, I've been here like five minutes staring at this license plate, which in reality, maybe 10, 15 seconds. Yeah. Right? But it just seemed But it like felt journey. like that. Yeah. And I'm 
I'm looking out the windows up because I'm thinking, wow, he just saw me. Uh-huh. I just burned myself, you know? And so I immediately peel off, go across the street. And across the street is a 7-Eleven and, yeah. and, and there's also a thrift mart. Um, there used to be a entrance to that back alley. Now it's closed off. But I immediately parked there, got out of my car, got my binoculars, and I put it out. And dispatch says, uh, call the watch commander. So I call into the watch commander, and I, I'm super excited. Yeah. Adrenaline's going. And I'm already thinking, you know, if he comes out, how am I going to take him down? Yeah. What am I going to do? And so everything's running through my mind as I'm waiting for this watch commander to um, answer. And he tells me, are you positive? And I said, yes, I triple checked. It's it, it's the car. Uh-huh. And he tells me that um, everybody had just left like 45 minutes ago. And so we had not only those two DAIs that were there, the district attorney investigators, but a flood of other task force officers ready to go at any moment. Okay. So that whole room had been taken over by this unit that was ready to take him down. And they were strategizing for the next day, like, hey, who's going to be at which um, a bank hoping to see if, you know, because we didn't know what bank it was. Yeah. And so, and so they're trying to get all that information. They decided if we're going to go home and come back in the morning. So everyone had left. And he's, and I remember the watch commander saying, before I call everybody back, are you positive? And I'm like, sorry, I triple check. Yeah. It's it. And so he says, I'm getting off the phone. I need to call everybody back. And so um, there I was, 2 a.m., um, 3 a.m., 4 a.m., the car's not moving. 5 a.m., the car's not moving. And uh, trying to stay awake, and as much adrenaline you have, but, you know, my day starts at 3 p.m., and now the following day, it's now 5 a.m., and I yeah. um, And I'm seeing double, and, you know, I'm seeing, like, shadows that aren't there. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so um, 6 a.m., the new shift starts coming out, and the watch commander... Um, says, hey, day watch is going to come out and relieve you guys. Um, and I remember having this conversation with my watch commander. I got him on the phone and I said, I'm not leaving. And I said, uh, I was I was a citizen when this happened. I remember all this. And now I'm a cop. I'm, I'm the one that wants to have, you know, basically take him into custody. And it meant so much to me. Like, I yeah. wanted to slap on those cuffs. I wanted to be that guy that took him into uh, custody. And uh, and the watch commander goes, dude, you've been up way too much. Mm-hmm. You, you got to go. And I said, give me, you know, just give me some more time. And he goes, you got another half hour. Mm-hmm. And I remember he gave, gave me a half hour. I think it stretched it out to 45 minutes. I was hoping he'd forget. Mm-hmm. And he did it. Mm-hmm. He called me and basically ordered me to go home. And uh-huh. so I got in my patrol car. You know, we have other officers set up, you know, in different directions in case he takes off and, and so forth. And we have a plan. Um, and I get ordered to go home. I take the long route home. You know, I stop at, you know, probably a 7-Eleven. Yeah. Hoping, you know. <laughs> um, and uh, eventually go home and uh, fall asleep. I checked in. I remember calling dispatch right before I went to sleep and saying, has a car moved? And they said, no. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I'm worried because I'm like, maybe he left the car and abandoned, abandoned it, it yeah. and then he took off and, you know, did I miss him? And so all these things are going through my head. And so um, the other thing that's not put into paper is stories um, is something interesting is like um, people think that 
they just sat on the car and watched them and they took them into custody. Yes. That didn't happen. It didn't happen that way. Um, the watch commander at that time, and uh, I can't remember who the watch commander is at that time, and I probably would have mentioned his name if, if I knew, if I recalled, but the day watch commander decided that um, officers needed to respond to other calls um, and that we were simply going to put a tracker on that car mm-hmm. and the tracker would alert us when it moves. And they did that. They put a tracker on it. They left one officer on it. And then they basically told that officer that he could roam around and, and so forth. Didn't have to stay there. Um, and uh, the problem with trackers is trackers are set up in a different way. You can either set it up to alert you every 5, 10, 15 minutes mm-hmm. of where it is. Or you can put a geofence where you basically just say, hey, in this area, as long as it stays in that area, don't alert me. Yeah. It conserves the battery, and that's why you do it that uh, way. Okay. And then it, once it moves out of that, alert me. Mm-hmm. And so, unfortunately, they didn't set it up correctly. And um, when they were alerted, the car had moved about four blocks already. Man. And so nobody saw him get into the car. Yeah. Nobody saw him, you know, driving away. Uh, potentially, we could have lost that. Yes. And so four blocks away, the first ping comes out. And I remember the the officer, uh, he was one of my partners, um, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, Officer McConing uh, got the uh, alert, and he stays, starts taking off on industrial, uh, trying to catch up to him, and his partner, uh, Demetrio, is also in that route, and, and um, they get another ping. So now it's not, remember... This is back in ninth in two thousand early two thousand right? yeah and so two thousand and three yes and so um, it, right now you know you can GPS you know GPS someone or if you're you know f- sharing your location with your friends oh it, yeah it shows you them moving right yep um, we didn't have that back then it was like ping here and another five minutes it pings somewhere else. And it shows you, okay, well, obviously, you know he's going in this direction. But yeah. that's it. Yeah. So, um, uh, Officer Picconi and Demetrio end up spotting the vehicle down off of Hollister and Palm uh, on Citrus, on uh, a small little street. It's a little dead end. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that, that street recently had uh, a, a, another homicide, which you know we're involved in now uh, in my current agency um, but uh, I remember that that's street, where so the go-karts were used to be right past that, that past oh that. okay so past that as you go where the go-karts are and then you start coming up so you have the go-karts and then you have the little um, golf uh, yes you know and then um, the first little street across the street from the trolley tracks that's citrus oh and that's where okay is, right before palm okay and so um, they see the car um, they start uh, trying to set up on him and, and start coming in to create, you know, a little bit of a roadblock. Um, and he ends up uh, seeing the officers and takes off. And that turns into a pursuit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that pursuit goes on to the I-5. Now, you've, uh, first of all, congr- congratulations. Great job on, like, doing all the research. Oh, yeah. Thank else. you. One of the things that as a police officer is like for me throughout my entire career I never watched the news I never read articles about it 
I, you know, it's what I actually read and the information I got from the officers. Yeah. Um, so you did great, great job in bringing up a lot of that information. Yeah. Thank um, you. But as as uh, he ends up fleeing on I five. I believe you, you mentioned, and I'm not clear on this part, but I think he was going in the wrong direction on yes. I-5, right? I know he was going from Palm, he was going northbound, um, but I but I think your, your information was he was going on the opposite um, uh, side of the highway. Yeah, it said when they were chasing, so when they were chasing him, he rammed, rammed actually into one of the police cars and he does this sort of u-turn and attempts to go southbound on a northbound ramp and then that's when it said there was an officer driving in a cop car with the his last name was harris that's when he spots manual and he's driving full force towards the officer kelly harris kelly harris was one of my sergeants oh really and um and so he ends up going um on i-5 and over to main street where um you know, uh, there's almost a traffic collision there yeah. with uh, with another unit. And he, he ends up um, going off the road into the uh, grass area um, and flips the car. Yeah. And um, the officers, I remember them talking to them because I went and talked to them. Because remember, I wanted to be that officer. Yes. I, wanted to I don't know how you slept that so, morning. But I don't know. I was I was just, and so, yeah, the, the car overturned. Uh, he tried to get out of the car, and uh, they were able to take him into custody there. And so, um, yeah, such, such memories there of, of, of the whole process of, you know, you're a civilian and you hear about this, and then you get an opportunity to bring justice to the family. Um, and so... Um, hey, was, but the fact that you found him, that was like you didn't give up and you went to all of the motels and the hotels. If you didn't spot that SUV, who knows he, I, I how long it might have taken. He might have been in Mexico already. I think about that all the time. Yes. Like, had I just got tired and said, give up, you know? Yeah. After 20 hotels, to, and if I if I would have given up. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I just, you know, I... I, I I systematically, I didn't even have a list. I, I just knew where all the hotels were and I decided to go. Um, I don't know. I even think of this because I started on the west side. I started yeah. off coming into National City and I started there and then I worked my way east. Had I continued on Broadway and and went to that hotel, motel early and he wasn't there, I would have missed him. Yes. I, I just, I, I don't know, something guided me. It doesn't make sense that I came up Broadway and then I worked east but I did yeah you know and I went east when I got to East Street I went east to over to La Quinta worked my way there went out east and then um, worked my way south and then came back on Broadway and that was the last hotel motel yeah um, and um, you know maybe it was I was being guided yes uh, I in believe regards so. to that but um, yeah that 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 uh, will forever stick in my mind and the billboard, the billboard thing. That was so crazy yeah. because I, my Theo Jr. had said when I told him that I was going to have you on and, and stuff in the case that we were going to discuss, um, he said, oh, Mija, you don't remember. I used to take you to it. And I said, I don't remember. He said, yeah, we went a few times with your cousin Starla and Isaac and we would look and I said, do you remember seeing the image? And he said, you know, if I squinted my eyes mm-hmm. the right way, he said I was able to see it. He said, but yeah, there was like miles of cars just 
Awaiting. So for your listeners that are going, what are you talking about, the billboard? Yeah. Here's here's what happened with that. A little bit after she was found um, dead, um, off of Main Street and um, uh, over off of Main Street and um, Broadway, um, where Otai Farms now is, yeah. uh, up above that, in the back, behind Otai Farms, where the parking lot is, there used to be this billboard. And... Um, back in those days, if there wasn't any ads, they'd take down the ads and it would just be a white billboard. Mm-hmm. And it was a sign on there, you know, available for lease or rent. Um, and then you could, you know, lease it for a certain amount of time. So it was a white billboard. Lights were turned on. And there was an image that appeared on the white billboard. Mm-hmm. And people started saying that it was Laura's face. And it was that picture that they kept showing, you know, where she's got the little ponytail. Side ponytail. Side ponytail. Yeah. And so people were seeing the image of her shadows, like shadows. It would kind of create the image of of her. And other people were seeing that behind that, it showed like another image. And so, um, you know, it's one of those where I remember going and going, I don't see it. I don't see it. And and you kind of talk to the, your friends standing next to you and they see something and yeah. they're kind of like, well, if you look over here and you'll see, and then, but once you saw that photo and then looked up, then I started to kind of see a, a, a glimpse of her hair wow. and so forth. And I'm like, oh, I see what you mean now. Yeah. So something that's not in those reports and something that's because the police reports don't talk about that. But if you Google it, you'll see all kinds of news articles about that. So um, it started becoming like a major attraction. Like yeah. cars, 10,000 10, cars would be lined up Jeez. or 10,000 people would visit that over the weekends. And Chula Vista was a small department. And yeah. So they couldn't handle that, you know, and they're like, uh, it was traffic was a mess. And like I said, I lived down the street on Jacko and Maine uh, right before uh, Industrial. And the cars would be lined up and, you know, course residents are complaining oh, that they can't get into and so um the city uh, asked the owner to move the lights because what they thought was that the lights were somehow creating that shadow okay and if you move the spotlights a little bit um then it'd be fine you don't want to turn it off because it had the sign that it was still for lease and so they decided to go up there and move the spotlights and so they moved the spotlights the image didn't go away God, that is so wild. So um, eventually they told the owner that he had to basically turn off the lights at night. And so they ordered them to turn off the lights and people would still go there. People would shine their, you know, spotlights up there. They didn't stop for a long time. I don't know how long it went for, but the billboard became a a big thing. And it it kept Laura's you know a memory alive yes it's like don't forget about this little girl yes and so um it was it was not it was national news yeah you know um la times was doing an article on it and i think you mentioned 2020 kind of something on dateline yeah dateline and so it was a major thing and and um that's how i remember that's our that's why when i was standing there as a you know, two years, three years on as a patrol officer, I'm like, is that the billboard? Yeah. And uh, and it was. And I'm like, I remember that. I was, you know, three years out of high school. Yeah. And so here I am three years out of high school, but now I'm, an officer. I'm an officer and I get an opportunity to make a difference. Yes. So, yeah. 
great great job on that and, and yes. back a lot of um, I, I hope the family is uh, you know has some type of closure in regards to this and I had always thought about you know uh, reaching out to the family I was there during the trial oh um, you were yeah I was scheduled to testify how I found the car um, but um, the very on the very last day what I, my testimony wasn't needed okay in regards to that so but I, I I remember being there I remember um, uh, uh, Manuel being brought in and out. Um, so you've seen him? Yeah, I got to see him. Uh, I got to see his family uh, and Laura's family. And uh, so I, I, I remember those days um, and, uh, and, the, and the pain, the pain of the family. So the dad, uh, when the, the family gave basically their impact statement, the dad said that um, for six years after her murder, they never changed her room it was exactly the way it was that night from that night that she was taken from her home and he said that every night after work he would go into her um, bedroom and just like cry and her two brothers her two older brothers um after this happened that they were just scared to go places and they were they would have like nightmares and stuff like that. So just really, t they talked about how much, you know, it just affected him. And they were saying how she would talk about um, when she grew up, she wanted to be a teacher. Um, and when she would play pretend with her friends, she would always pretend that she was a teacher. Uh, she said when she went to high school, she wanted to be a cheerleader. And her mom was talking about just the bond that they had, like a mother and daughter that was her only daughter. And so, yeah, it just, you know, it was just like really sad. And I watched videos on YouTube of the dad talking and you could just still see all these years later, just the pain right. that, you know, he had. And I, I read on the court documents that for a moment, I mean, they always had this gut feeling that it was manual. Um, right. But there was also a moment that they thought it could have been. Um, I guess the Arroyos were selling their taco shop at that time. So they thought maybe it was somebody out of, I don't know, anger or whatever, could have done something like that. But I had never heard that before until I read the court documents. Um, but anyways, yeah, on September 2nd, 2005, the jury finds Manuel guilty, and he is now sitting on death row, where he belongs to be. Right. Right. So, so anyways, thank you so much again, Oz, for coming on the podcast. And I'm so grateful that you just never gave up and you decided. And I do think something was definitely guiding you to go about it the way that you did. Because who knows if you didn't decide. Yeah, you know, law enforcement's got a, a bad rap recently, you know, with, with, with how, um, you know, uh, justice is, is in the United States. And we recently have had a decline of people wanting to go into law enforcement because um. of that. Um, but I got to tell you, if, if, there's, if, if any of your listeners are, are you know, considering going into law enforcement, uh, we need good people. Yes. Without a doubt. Um, these are the rewarding parts um, yes. of law enforcement. You know, there's a lot of bad parts that we have to deal with and so forth. But these are the things that stay with you. Um, I mean, that was 2003. That was 20 years ago. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I'm still in law enforcement. I'm with, with another agency. Um, but those are the, you know, in, in was it episode 10? 
the, the thing that you were on. Yeah, yeah, you were on episode ten. I talked. I talk about the cookie jar, right? Yeah, You're reaching into the cookie jar, and that's what keeps you going. That's just another, you know, uh, cookie that you have in there. Yeah, and you reach back and say, you know, when you question like, why am I doing this? You know, and so forth. It's those things, those little impacts that you do. That every single officer just makes that much of a difference. And if you're considering law enforcement, you know, in, in regards to doing that, it's so rewarding. Yeah, so humbling, and uh, it, it's 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 a humble. Um, um, thing to do and, and I encourage anyone that has a good heart to go into law enforcement okay yeah. okay well thank you again yeah. Oz for yeah. coming on the podcast absolutely um, keep it up I've been listening to all your <laughs> all your you. episodes I love hearing it I was like did I he, didn't know about that you know did he hear about um, did he listen to the episode um, I think like so my most listened episode that I told uh, the story not having like a guest on was the Raymond Rogers case. Uh-huh. That was the one that was listened to the most. But then the second was the Jonathan Sellers and Charlie Caver. I reached out to the mom, well, one of the boys' moms, and she left me a message to give to the listeners. So I, I can't believe um, that case. I never even heard about that case. And it was such a well-known case i was a young kid at that time but anyways uh jonathan's mom melania was amazing and i'm gonna give you a list of cases you should look into please do and uh, please and, do and, and uh, some of them i may have been involved in and you know there's so many right now that unfortunately i can't talk about because yeah they're ongoing, they're ongoing uh, with the current agency that i'm in but um yeah you do a great job and, and thank uh, you um I'll, I'll give you some of them because i'd love you to do the the research and that yeah. bring it to your so then watch out with saying that because I'm going to start harassing you all the time <laughs> bothering yeah, you you're going to yeah, be like absolutely. you're going to block my number yeah. <laughs> well thank you again for coming on and thank you to everybody who takes the time to listen to the podcast I hope you have a good day bye bye bye